Welcome to the Root of Power podcast, where I teach you how to chase your joy, find alignment, and create a life and a business that you love using actionable methods, interviews, and inspiring stories from people who know that true freedom is found within. I'm your host, your always hype woman and sometimes ass kicker, Amanda Chills, and I am so proud of you for choosing to step into your power. Come along, we've got dreams to build. Okay, my love, I have put everything that I offer for free on one page so that we are not doing more work than we have to because why would we do that? Hashtag work smarter, not harder. So livemyhappyhealth.com slash free. You are going to find everything I've created for not only leveling up in your personal life and building a life that you love, but leveling up in your business life and building a business that you love. Okay livemyhappyhealth.com slash free. Love you. Hi. Welcome to this week's podcast. And we're going to talk about my favorite tools for anxiety. Um, but not necessarily tools in the form of like apps or journal prompts or like, uh, like squeezy toys, like not like physical tools, but mostly the frameworks that I teach my clients the most often when dealing with anxiety and how I think about anxiety. And then I'll explain why I think about it that way. Before we get to that though, how are you? It's been a minute or perhaps you're binging the podcast and it's been zero minutes. I don't really know, but I hope that you're well. And I hope that wherever you are, you are on your healing journey and it is going as easy as it can for you. Um, this work is not for cowards. This work is not easy, but it is 100,000% worth it because the peace that you feel on the other side and the freedom that you feel on the other side is like indescribable, honestly. Um, it's just so different. If you are in the middle of a trauma drama land, once you come out of it, you come out of the swamp, it is like, it's just so fucking good. So if you're in the middle of it and you're like, yeah, there's definitely an alligator like biting my ass right now. Um, keep going, <laughs> keep going, whatever you do, keep going rest. Of course, if you need to, but like keep going. Um, so anxiety, so anxiety is uh, so many things. Um, it's one of the things that like people make their whole identity and that people become both obsessed with and neurotic as fuck about. And it's incredibly harmful to do this because once you make something your identity, your subconscious will prove it right until the end of time and until you shift it. So one of the most harmful things that I've seen in like mainstream life is people wearing anxiety like a badge of honor. Or they're like, I'm anxious AF and they have like pins that say it or their clothes say it or you know, it's on their Instagram bio or they like, they just become anxiety. And so their mind, because mind hates being wrong and it will look for evidence to prove itself right, looks for all the ways in which they experience anxiety. And then people even say, I'm anxious. I'm an anxious person. Can you imagine if someone was like, I'm bad. I'm a horrible person. Like, 
that only feeds itself. There's no reality where like what you say you are doesn't manifest because subconscious is a manifesting machine. What you think you are will come to reality. And it's so damaging. And then we have this, you know, epidemic of anxiety if you pay any attention to the news at all. Um, and the, you know, the nice thing about social media is like it's become there's a lot of educators. And the bad thing about social media is there's a lot of really shitty educators who don't know what they're talking about, who have no experience, who have no training, who discovered buzzwords and decided to make money off of it. So then you have people like anxiety coaches and you have people like that who are working with people with anxiety without understanding the root or how to heal it. They're teaching you how to cope, which is another one of the most dangerous things that we can do, right? Like anxiety is not a death sentence and it's not a life sentence. You can heal it. And what I mean by that is like you can make it go away. It's more like a broken leg than an amputated leg. A broken leg heals, an amputated leg obviously is gone forever. Um, and a lot of people, because they teach you how to cope with anxiety, because that's the kind of language that they use, it convinces people that there's nothing they can do. They're hopeless against it. You can't heal it. You can't do anything other than learn how to suffer one or two percent less but it'll be this for the rest of your life and there's nothing there's no way out which like god what a hopeless framework and mindset and then people wonder why if they typically experience anxiety they'll typically experience depression and it's like part of that is why because of this like oh cope with your anxiety rhetoric so i don't use that rhetoric at all um, I don't want people to cope with their anxiety. I want to heal it. I want it to go away. And if you're like, wow, Amanda, that's super insensitive. You ignorant bitch. Like, first of all, it can be done. Second of all, I've done it dozens of times. Now, do people still experience like anxious thoughts? Do they still experience worry and nerves? Yeah, obviously. The only people who don't experience that are dead people. So since you're alive, uh, you're going to experience that, but the like criteria for meeting an anxiety disorder goes away. And if you no longer meet the criteria, you don't have it anymore, which means it's healed. So that is entirely possible. And if this is the first time you're ever healing that, <laughs> healing that, hearing that, my mind is like, we're healing. Um, you're fucking welcome. Like you can heal anxiety to the point where it goes away and no longer has negative consequences on your life. And how do I know this? I'm a fucking therapist. And this is what I do for a living. Um, so if anyone is telling you, well, you can only cope with it, like one, I would argue that they're not very good. They don't know how to heal it. And two, what are they selling you? So we'll think about those things. And, you know, one of the reasons that I think about it this way is because it's more useful. So, like, am I the ultimate authority on all things mental health? No, but I am an authority. I am an expert. And I prefer to think of things in terms of usefulness because when we think about, if we think about anxiety as this thing that you can't get rid of, this thing you just have to cope with and it'll, you can never get rid of it, then 
it puts people in a disempowered state. And I don't believe that that is any percent useful. I'm not going to convince people that they're in a prison and then tell them that they can't get out when the prison is made up. Like it's made up. You can walk out at any time. So it's much more useful to say anxiety can be healed because then that means that you have agency, you have power, you have options that are not just grit your teeth and bear it and suffer for the rest of your life. So it's much more useful to think of it this way. And I have the evidence to prove that it can be done and it can be done in a repeatable fashion with different people. So a few things to understand. One is, is that that anxiety can be healed to the point where it goes away. Um, not that you never experience anxious thoughts again or nerves or worry or anything like that, but like the anxiety that gets in the way of you living your life and being happy very much can be healed and can go away, which is beautiful. The other thing that I have seen through doing this work now for mm, almost a decade, so I'm on year seven, is I have never seen someone with anxiety that meets the criteria for anxiety who has not experienced trauma, where anxiety was a survival mechanism during the trauma they experienced that now was taken out of context. So for example, if you grew up in a house where abuse was present, it would very much behoove you to always think of the worst case scenario because the worst case scenario is that you you fucking die. So in order to not die, mind, thank you very much, mind, in the effort to help you out, would jump to worst case scenarios because your life was in danger, whether there was literal danger or there was a risk of being cast out, especially as a young child, right? Like if food bringer, aka whoever's caring for you, doesn't love you, doesn't care about you, you will die. So children very much understand the concept of make food bringer happy, make food bringer do whatever it takes to make food bringer continue to bring me food and have shelter. And so if you're in a traumatic or chaotic or neglectful environment, it 100% benefits you to jump to the worst case scenario to be hyper aware, but it's not even hyper aware to be appropriately aware of whoever has the most power in that dynamic, their moods and their mood shifts and where they're at and how they're feeling and the way that they say things. Because if you have ever experienced someone who's manipulative or cruel, you know that they can say the same words in different ways and it means different things. So you're constantly having to read subtext. You're constantly having to appropriately analyze. In that situation, in that dynamic, it is the appropriate amount of analysis. It's the appropriate response to go to worst case scenario, to constantly problem solve, to be appropriately vigilant, to, you know, have a, a very small or very large reaction to things like anxiety in the right context is survival mechanisms. When People are taken out of that context when they get out of the house that was abusive, when they leave a relationship that was abusive, when, you know, when the environment changes, that's when anxiety fits the criteria 
that's when those survival skills are no longer necessary. So it looks like hypervigilance. It looks like jumping to the worst case scenario. It looks like, you know, seeing the negative and everything. But all of those things are survival mechanisms when traumatic events are happening. They're the right response to trauma. They are the unhelpful response when the environment changes. So I've never, ever, and we're talking hundreds of people at this point and my team. So we're adding an extra 200 probably. And in therapists that I talk to, like I have never seen someone who experiences anxiety who does not have a history of trauma. So the problem with these like anxiety coaches and with therapists who stop at anxiety and with the doctors who stop at anxiety and they're not digging into your history, they're not digging into where you experience trauma is they're fixing the wrong thing. It's like if you're parachuting and your goal is to parachute into the Grand Canyon, which is, I think is in Arizona, or correct me if I'm wrong. I think it's in Arizona and it's like you end up in Nevada, which is close, close. You know, they're like, I don't know, they border. I should probably know the West better, but here we are. But it's the wrong thing. It's the wrong thing. You're landing in the wrong place. So they'll say like, oh yeah, you just overthink. and But you're not overthinking the entire time. You develop that skill set for a reason. Mind doesn't do things willy-nilly. It doesn't do things for no reason. It does things for a reason. When you are removed from that environment, then mind has not gotten the message that danger is gone and there's no need to do those survival skills anymore. That is the point of figuring out where the trauma happened, healing the trauma, and then the tools that I'm going to talk about in a second. So please understand that like, if you experience anxiety, I guarantee there is trauma in your history. Even if you're like, but I had a good childhood. Amazing. I love that for you. And these survival mechanisms don't come out of nowhere. Okay, now it can also be the product of like living in a capitalist society. If you have a marginalized identity, if you're trans, if you're out part of the LGBT plus community, if you are a person of color, if you're poor, if any of those things, right? Any marginalized identity, if you're an immigrant, like that, of course, will bring about survival skills that when taken out of that environment where they're necessary, looks like anxiety. But at some point, those serve you, otherwise they wouldn't be here, which is the point of what I'm saying. So one of the things that we want to do is teach mind to discern when it's appropriate to have those survival skills and when they're not necessary. Like, for example, when I have clients who um, struggle to bring their nervous system down, they will be in my environment, in a therapy session, sitting out in my field, hyper vigilant. But it's only hyper because it's not necessary in that context where, you know, the particular client that I'm thinking of is a veteran, like when they were on tour and they were at risk of getting killed, they were appropriately vigilant. It's only the context that changed and mind wasn't getting the message that it's okay to discern when this is useful and when it's not, which is the point of that's really how we heal a lot of the anxiety is teaching mind when it's appropriate and when it is not useful, when it, it, it's just too much. So now that we've covered all that, what are the things that I teach most often? These are in no particular order. Um, my brain works in a spider web, so it just 
with clients. It just depends on what comes up first. Um, and then we dig into that. But eventually we do hit all of these things. So the first one is changing language. So if you are my client or if you ever become my client or if you hear me teach about this, which you're doing now. So congrats. That's amazing. Um, you'll notice that I, I never call anything anxiety. I never say I'm anxious. What I will say instead is the more nuanced emotions. I feel, I feel, I am not those things, but I feel those things. I feel worried. I feel nervous. I feel afraid. I feel unsafe. Um, I feel concerned. Like there's a, there's a particular reason that I'm not calling those things anxiety because when you call everything anxiety, mind, all mind hears is that anxiety takes up your entire day. It's like people who say like, well, I was so pissed off today, but really you were, you were mad for like 10 minutes and you just reminded yourself that you were pissed off for those 10 minutes the entire day. So then it looks like your entire day was anger. People who experience anxiety do the same thing. They say, I'm anxious about this. I'm anxious about this. I'm anxious about this. And all mine here is I am anxious. We are not any of our emotions. We feel them, we experience them, but we are not them. But people are not careful about their language. And this is one of the things that like, I am such a stickler on for my clients. Every single time they say it, I say, you're not that, but you experience it. You're not that, but you feel it. Are you anxious or are you feeling worried? Are you anxious or do you feel nervous? And they say, oh, well, actually I'm nervous. And it's like, okay, correct. So the more that you dig into the nuance, the less and less present anxiety is and mind starts to understand that you're not anxious you're all of these other things all of these nuanced things so that is a beautiful thing so i'm feeling whatever is more accurate for you that's what we actually want the other thing is to feed your courage and starve your worries and your fears so mind tries to protect us by giving us the worst case scenario. That's a very logical thing. Again, especially if the worst case scenario was you being in danger. So mind will continue to throw you this worst case scenario and this worst case scenario and this problem and this problem and this problem and this problem, but that, 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 until you are driven fucking insane. And that is so unhelpful. It's, well, it's helpful in the correct context. It is unhelpful when your life is not but what happens when people experience trauma is because the trauma tends to be so prevalent, mind starts generalizing that everything is potentially dangerous. And so these patterns become its default. So feeding your courage and starving your fear. What I mean by that is when mind hands you this fear, this fear, this fear, this fear, this fear, um, most of them are fucking dumb. Like most of them are useless. Most of them are not even real. Most of them are so unlikely that like you're honestly more likely to win the lottery than for those things to come true. But what happens because mine's primary goal is survival, survive now so we can maybe thrive later, except when you experience anxiety, you never get to the thrive part because your mind is stuck in survival mode because mine's primary objective is survival, it will hand you more fears in an effort to keep you safe. Because at one point, remember, at one point, that was useful to you. 
And anything that's useful in a survival situation, anything that's useful in a traumatic situation, your mind will hold on to like glue. But it's not helpful in every situation. So just because if you, um, oh, well, now my brain just went blank. Crap. Just because one dog bit you doesn't mean we need to be terrified of every dog, right? But mind will say, okay, well, avoiding that dog didn't work that one time. So I'm going to avoid every dog now. That's not particularly helpful. So mind will hand you these fear responses. And because fear overrides logic, people get stuck in this loop. They get stuck in this anxiety loop of what if, what if, what if, what if. And then they're constantly planning and then they're exhausted because you're problem solving bullshit all day long. But because fear overrides logic, you think that you're being logical, but you're not. Oh, sorry. I'm like, sorry to tell you that, but I'm not sorry to tell you that because like, honestly, this is going to set you free and we love that for you. So feeding your courage and starving your fears and your worries. I can't tell you how many of my clients I tell where I'm like, okay, and if that happens, we'll just solve it. You'll just, you'll just figure it out. Like it's okay. Nothing is so bad that you can't figure it out. And if it's the worst case scenario, AKA you're dead, it's no longer your problem. So that's cool. Like, that's nice, I guess. Then you don't have to do anything. Um, so as things become safer, mind doesn't magically learn discernment because mind loves, the brain loves to be efficient and it loves to generalize. So again, anything that helped you in a scenario where danger felt present, where there was a perceived threat, mind will hold on to and generalize the shit out of. So you have to train discernment. You have to train your mind to say, these scenarios are safe, these scenarios unsafe. So definitely keep that in mind. Um, and like a lot of my clients don't realize how like bananas these scenarios are. They'll just be like, oh, I'm going on this trip. And what if the car goes off the road into the water from a bridge and then we're all drowning? And it's like, have you ever driven your car off of a bridge? No. Why the fuck would you start now? That makes no sense. Like, that makes no sense. What if I go camping and there's murder hornets there? And it's like murder hornets haven't been a thing since 2019. Do you remember murder hornets, by the way? Like, what a bananas ass thing to experience. Like, 2019 was wild. So learning discernment is very, very helpful, which leads us into the next thing. And these two are a little bit related. But anyway, all of these are kind of related. So I have an 80% threshold that I teach people. If something is not 80% likely to happen, we do not need to problem solve it. Like you don't need to problem solve you driving your car off of a bridge because uh, it hasn't happened yet and it's not 80% likely to happen. Like a plane falls out of the sky and I literally looked this up for this episode. One out of every 11 million flights or it was 11 billion. It was some stupidly high number. So that's like a 0.0001 chance. Is there a chance? Yeah. And so mind, again, because fear overrides logic, says, but there's a chance, which is one of the hallmarks of experiencing anxiety is like, but there's a chance. And it's like, yes, there is a chance, but the chance is stupidly low. So I don't see you attaching anti-plane missiles to your house just because one out of every 11 million planes crash. So maybe we also don't need to 
plan for all of these other ridiculously low chance scenarios. So if there's not an 80% threshold, like if there's an 80% chance of rain, you bring an umbrella, you bring a cute little rain jacket. Um, but if there's not an 80% chance, there's nothing that needs to be done. So that just that like statistic number has been so helpful for my clients. So please feel free to run with that. This is how we teach discernment because mind thinks everything is, if there's a 0.0001% chance, then I have to plan for it. That's what mind believes when it doesn't know how to discern. The 80% chance rule is, or the 80% threshold is how we teach discernment. So it asks you to think critically about the chances of a thing happening and if we even need to plan for it. So if there's not an 80% chance that it happens, not that there's a 0% chance, let's not lie to our brain. There is a chance, but it is not worth problem solving currently. If it comes up, then I have full faith in your beautiful brain's capacity and ability to problem solve it because you have a brain. Use it. So the 80% threshold, if it's on 80% chance that it will happen, we do not need to plan anything around it. Now, this one is for my beautiful people, i.e. you, my little cinnamon rolls, who jump to a worst case scenario. Well, so here's what I actually, actually find is like, my clients will say, well, I'm anxious. I'm anxious about that. I'm anxious about this. I'm anxious about this. And, but then they never say why. Because mind hears I'm anxious and shuts everything down and goes into fear override mode, which again is not helpful. So I'm anxious about this. I'm anxious about this. And then they just stew in that anxiety without ever naming the thing that they're afraid of. So I like to play Armageddon, not the movie, although that is a really good movie. I like to play Armageddon and I say, okay, what's the worst thing that happens? And they're like, uh, okay, this is the worst thing that happens. But they're usually like close, but one or two like lily pads away. So imagine, so I, I don't think of like jumping away. I think of lily pads where I'm like, oh, I need to be on this lily pad over here, but I landed one or two away. So they're usually close. So when I say like, what's the worst thing that happens? They say, oh, they get mad at me. And I'm like, okay, yeah, that's a bad thing that happens. But what is that actually, what are you making that mean? And they say, oh, if they're mad at me, they'll never talk to me again and I'll lose that person. It's like, okay, that's actually where the Armageddon is. So when we play Armageddon, they name their worst fear, which in and of itself is very freeing. And then I say, okay, then what? Then what happens? Oh, if they never talk to me again, then, you know, I lose this person forever. And I'm like, okay, but how realistic is that? Like, is that, is, does that meet the 80% threshold? No, like this person has been upset with you multiple times. They've never ended the relationship over it. And even if they choose to, like you can reach out later. That's okay. So when you play Armageddon, you name your worst fear and then you just problem solve it. Because once you name and problem solve your worst fear, then mind says, okay, well, anything else is easier, which means I can handle it. Well, I'm afraid if I go on this plane, we'll have turbulence. And it's like, okay, but you're actually afraid of the plane crashing. So if the plane crashes, then what? Well, then I guess I would die. Okay, cool. Well, now it's not your problem. <laughs> like, there's nothing to do if you're dead. So 
Armageddon names your worst fear and then it problem solves it. And because you've like problem solved the worst thing that can happen, anything else that comes up, mind is like, oh yeah, cool. I can totally, I can totally vibe with that. So if you are ruminating on a particular problem, another helpful thing that you can do is to literally tell yourself, there's nothing I need to do about that now. Because mind, again, thinks it's being helpful by handing you these problems, by having you problem solve, but it's not helpful. It just gets you stuck in a loop. So you tell mind, there's nothing I need to do about that now. And mind goes, okay. Now you may have to say that a few times, right? But when you remind your brain that there's nothing that needs to be done, brain will go find something useful to do, which is a beautiful thing. Here is, okay, so our next three. So this is one that people who experience anxiety because the root is trauma um, tend to struggle with, but once they do it, it becomes incredibly helpful. And that's to play. Like, you can't be in survival mode and playing at the same time. You can't run from a bear, metaphorically, and blow bubbles at the same time. So if you are playing, mind automatically assumes that there is safety. Because why would you be playing if there's a threat, right? That doesn't make sense. So when people play, meaning doing a thing with no end goal, so like blowing bubbles or playing a game or not a video game. Mind what I'm saying, not a video game, like an actual tactile game, playing cards, um, learning how to slackline, learning to play the guitar, like learning a skill, an actual tactile skill, not something online, laughing with friends, digging in the dirt. Like when you are in play, mind automatically receives the message that there is safety. They will not exist at the same time. Now, it may, it may take you a minute for your like nervous system to relax, which is fairly common, but eventually it will release and mind will understand that we are playing. Play means safety. And because you're doing something tactile, because you're like using your body, using your hands, you are now becoming embodied, which is the next thing to do is to get into your body. Anxiety essentially decapitates you, which is one of the reasons why anxiety tends to be very loopy, is your brain thinks that you've been decapitated because you are not accessing your body. So people who are embodied, like if you've ever, um, if you've ever met someone who like just is peaceful, like they are peace, guarantee they are connected to their body, guarantee that they're embodied. Because when you're embodied, again, mind understands that not only are you connected, there's safety, even if the safety is internal. Like I always say that like, you can drop my dad in the middle of a war zone, and he'll just be like fucking vibing. He'll be like, this is so fun. What a good time. This is great. Because like he embodies peace. It doesn't matter where he is. He's like, nah, I'm good. Which is insane to watch and like such a life goal um so getting into your body is one of the ways that we heal anxiety again we don't cope with anxiety we heal it when you have this connection to your body you're present 
you are connected, mind no longer thinks that you're decapitated. So there's like one less thing to worry about. You have access to all this information that your body gives, which is like super, super exciting. And there's a lot of ways to get to do this. Like one is to tactile play with things because you're like using your body. Um, another way is to like do any sort of like physical practice and to pay attention to what your body's doing. So like if you've ever lifted before, you may have like gone to the gym and lifted, but you haven't been doing like a mind muscle connection. So paying attention to what your body's doing, activating the correct muscles during a lift is like a great way to do it. Doing a physical thing. Yoga dance is one of the most, one of the fastest ways to get embodied. Um, getting in a hammock, getting in a hammock swing. We kind of like unintentionally stumbled upon this when I got a hammock swing and had clients sit in it and they immediately came online. It was fucking crazy. So I was like, what the fuck is this magic? And then I bought five more swings because I was like this, this, I don't know, this is insane. But what it does is it like gives you a really different, like it, it activates your vestibular like in a really different way because most people aren't sitting suspended. I mean, adults typically aren't. So it's really, really interesting to do that. It's like sitting in a hammock or a hammock swing, going swimming because water puts pressure on your body more so than air does. So that's like a really amazing thing. Doing balance poses, um, doing a body scan, doing like some sort of controlled pain, like holding an ice cube until it melts or, you know, something like that. Um, doing pressure point therapy. Like that's a, that's one of the reasons acupuncture and massage work really well. It's because they get you into your body. So if you're playing, you're kind of automatically doing that, but also like very intentionally getting into your body is one of the, one of the most beautiful ways to heal anxiety. Now that's not to say like you do it once and then anxiety is like gone forever, but that is to say that a regular practice of that will heal anxiety, will help accelerate the healing. Another way is to get into nature. So humans, I think there was a study done a couple years ago where it says like people spend 96% of their time indoors. Like 96% is a bananas amount of time. So it's way too much, way too much. Like humans were actually like, we literally evolved to be outside. We're basically houseplants with more complicated emotions. Um, that's like one hour a day. So the more that you can get outside, the more that your nervous system is going to relax, which is a beautiful thing. So dig your hands in the dirt, get outside, feel the sun on your skin, breathe fresh air, like be around natural things. Now, if you're like Amanda, like there's not a lot of nature where I am. Like I, I live in a urban area. I live in a city. Um, you know, there's, there's just not a lot of greenery, like plants, plants on plants, on plants, on plants. That is a beautiful thing. Getting a little fountain where there's running water, like that is going to help you so much. But, you know, get some dirt plants. I'm just telling you, get an animal. Um, if you can like have one, rub some leaves on your face, like just make sure that you don't grab like poison ivy because, oh my God, please don't do that. You know, sit outside and watch clouds. Like there's so many ways to get outside if you're creative. So, so this is the tools that I teach most often. Um, and then of course I would be remiss if I didn't say like work with someone who specializes in trauma and heal trauma because as you heal trauma naturally your anxiety will go down um, because your mind is no longer perceiving so many threats 
And the less threats that you perceive, of course, the less necessary these responses are. Um, so yeah, those are the tools that I teach most often and they are good. <laughs> they are good. So I hope that this was useful to you. Um, if you have know someone who experiences anxiety, please do them a favor, do me a favor and send them this episode. Um, it will help so much. And the more people that understand that like you can actually heal it, the better people are because so many people are trapped and suffering under this narrative of like, well, it's just a death sentence. You're going to have it forever. The only thing we can do is cope with it or take medication that artificially brings your nervous system down. And then you have to stay on this forever because you never learn how to heal. Like that's not okay. And then you have all of these people who are over medicated when you can just heal it. Now, that's not to say medication doesn't have its place. It does have its place. But the U.S. especially is so over medicated, especially with with like benzos, Xanax, Pond and things like that is like people are artificially regulating their nervous system. But the problem is that they're artificially regulating a dysregulated system and not learning how to just regulate the system via healing, which is entirely possible. Okay, I've had people who experience like, I had one client come to me who was experiencing daily panic attacks and vomiting multiple times a week. Like it was that bad. And then now, no anxiety. No, she no longer fits the criteria. Now that's not to say she doesn't experience anxious thoughts or worry or nerves or anything like that. Like obviously she's still alive. So she's experiencing that, but like she no longer fits the criteria. We healed it. Now we had to do some trauma work in there, but these tools were also what she learned and what she learned to apply and got good at applying. So I will link the blog post where this is up um, in the show notes because it breaks down everything for you. Um, but please, if you found this helpful, share it with someone that you think it would benefit. Um, the more hands, ears, <laughs> and the more ears and eyes that gets into, the better. Um, and if you have questions, if you want some support with this, I probably have a resource for you. Um, and if not, I'll, I'll help you find one, but I definitely have resources for this for you. So, ah, happy healing, friend. Happy healing. Um, love you. Mean it. Bye.